listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening and welcome to the January 24th edition of Eye on the Triangle. I'm Nick. And I'm Jake. And we've got a great show for you tonight. We hear a little bit about students whose spring break plans are a little different, as well as a discussion about some political ideas that may have been getting a lot of attention lately. Also tonight, we'll discuss a new exhibit opening at the NCSU African American Cultural Center, and Mark Herring has some thoughts on the future of Occupy Wall Street. But first, let's do the news. Thanks, Nick. Tonight, President Obama will be giving the yearly State of the Union address to Congress at 9 p.m., the president is expected to push for more economic reforms in the coming year as a way to put Americans back to work and keep the economy on the road to recovery. The Republican response will be delivered immediately after by Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, who has been pushed by many in recent days to jump into the presidential race. The Romney campaign today released the tax returns of the Romney family for 2010. That year, the Romneys paid about $3 million in taxes out of about $21.6 million in income, or about 13.9%. This comes after days of pressure from fellow Republicans and Democrats alike for Mr. Romney to release his tax returns. Many of his followers feel that his reluctance to release his tax information in the days leading up to the South Carolina primary may have cost him the election. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, meanwhile, has been taking some criticism of his own after releasing his contract with Freddie Mac. He worked with the mortgage giant on and off between 1999 and 2008. Together, the contracts totaled about $1.6 million dollars. Gingrich has repeatedly claimed that he worked for Freddie Mac as a consultant and not a lobbyist. And with the Florida primary less than a week, week, less than a week away, many people see the race as a two-man contest between Romney and Gingrich. Santorum and Paul, meanwhile, both remain in the race and hope to galvanize support and pull an upstate in a state that is larger and more diverse than the previous three states. Penn State continues to mourn the loss of longtime coach Joe Paterno. Paterno was head of the football program at the university for 61 years. He was fired in November after a sex scandal involving assistant coach Jerry Sandusky surfaced. School authorities determined Mr. Paterno had not done enough to put a stop to Mr. Sandusky's actions. He died on Sunday at the age of 85. In international news, the Gulf Corporation Cooperation Council has pulled its monitors out of Syria after the Syrian government said it would continue to attack protesters. The Arab League has called on the international community to take steps to help end the crisis in Syria. And finally tonight, the main campus of Wake Technical Community College went on lockdown this morning after a man carrying a gun was reported to authorities. After several hours, no suspect could be found and the lockdown was lifted around 10.30. This incident marks the sixth time a North Carolina college has been on lockdown since September and the second time Wake Tech has been on lockdown. Thanks, Jake. Now we turn to Katie Costa for the weather. Well, Nick, today we have finally managed to see some sunshine, which is a nice change from the dreary, rainy weather we have been having over the past few days. The good news is that tomorrow will be another beautiful day with sunny skies and a high of 60 degrees. Now be sure to get outside and enjoy the nice weather tomorrow if you can, since clouds will begin to roll in Wednesday night with lows in the lower 40s. And you will need your umbrella and rain boots once again on Thursday as rain makes its way back into the triangle in the afternoon hours. Temperatures will be fairly mild with highs in the low 60s and lows in the mid-50s. Rain will continue into Friday with highs still remaining in the lower 60s. And rain will finally taper off by Friday evening, but we will be much colder Friday night. Temperatures will drop as low as mid-30s. So be sure to really bundle up if planning on heading out Friday evening. We have a beautiful sunny weekend ahead, though, with highs in the low to mid-50s both Saturday and Sunday. However, it is going to be very chilly at nighttime since we will drop into the lower 30s once again on Saturday night and into the upper 20s on Sunday night. 
I don't know about you, Nick, but I am so sick of being on this weather roller coaster. One minute actually feels like winter, and the next minute feels like spring. Hopefully, Mother Nature will make up her mind. <laughs> well, thank you. We certainly hope so. For most of us, spring break is a time to relax, party, or just goof off. But a certain group of students choose to spend their spring break a little differently. Mark Herring has the story. This spring break, it's not going to be margaritas in Panama City for 100 students involved with the Center for Leadership, Ethics, and Public Service. These students are going on 12 trips abroad and 5 trips domestically to engage in community service and to learn about foreign cultures. The topics these trips are looking to address and learn more from range from gender issues in Guatemala, clean water in Honduras, medical issues in the Dominican Republic, and conservation in Costa Rica. I talked to the director of the Center for Leadership, Ethics, and Public Service, Mike Giancola, on what these alternative service breaks or ASB trips have to offer. Well, one of the things about ASB is it's not just about the direct service, but it's about what we learn from the experience. And so now that you've had the experience of being on an ASB team, I hope you'll continue to reflect on what is your role in a global society and how do your choices impact those around the world, and specifically in this case looking at issues of health care and, and thinking about how health care is delivered around the world and some of the inequalities in the system. It's a great opportunity for all of us to reflect on, again, our roles as global citizens. And with that experience, I think, comes a great responsibility. It's a responsibility to make the most of the experience, to continue to reflect on what you've learned, and to really use it as an opportunity to broaden um, your worldview. Um, when you have the chance to travel, your mind is never the same because you've stretched it in a way that that uh, hopefully will, will broaden your, your horizons and how you think about the world. So I think that responsibility is also to share the experiences, the stories of the people that you've met, and to, to help share those stories in a way that brings life to the unique uh, people that you'll interact with. So if now after your ASB trip, all you do is think back you know, 10 years from now about the really cool week you spent in Guatemala, then I would say you've wasted your time and you've wasted our opportunity to really think about what ASB is about. Because ASB is, again, a, a, for some, a starting place uh, to think about the world differently, to think about how we show up in the world and how our actions impact others and theirs ours. Though the service trips will only last a week, Mike Giancola said he hopes the impact lasts longer. From Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mark Herring. exhibit at the African American Cultural Center in Witherspoon is opening next week. The Too Black, Too Fast exhibit runs through April 2012. Nick Savage has more. So I'm here in closed production with Ms. Sheila Smith-McCoy, who is the director of the African American Cultural Center right here in Witherspoon. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm so happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. I direct the African American Cultural Center. I also direct Africana Studies, and I edit a journal on campus from the English department called Obsidian Literature in the African Diaspora. And I'm a professor of literature, so I've been directing the African American Cultural Center since April, and really looking forward to talking to you about some of the program we've got upcoming this month. Um, so I hear that you have an exhibit opening uh, just next Tuesday. 
It's called Too Black, Too Fast? Yes. And I was wondering what, what exactly it's about, what it's focusing on. What an interesting title, huh? One sure. <laughs> so Too Black, Too Fast focuses on the history of black jockeys. It's an exhibit that sort of explores an understudy part of American history, which looks at the first professional athletes of African descent in this country who were the black jockeys. And part of the publication material from the exhibit speaks to the fact that 200 years before Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, both enslaved and free black men were working as jockeys in this country, sort of setting the tone for what we see as modern thoroughbred racing history. So they did help bring the sport into what it is today? They were the jockeys of the day. So more than help, they were really the cornerstone on which the racing industry was built. That's impressive. So who are the artists and what was their inspiration behind this? One of the lead artists, the person who sort of put together the team, Michael McBride, has a, a long history of doing work not only on African-American themes, but he's traveled quite frequently to Ireland, to Barbados, to international artists. And he has an interesting technique that he uses in color block prints that end up becoming a full image. He's originally from the Midwest and is focused now in Nashville, Tennessee. But the exhibit came about from a conversation that he had when someone asked if he'd ever done anything on this history. And that's when he realized there was nothing done in the history nothing out there, and he sort of put together the exhibit from there. One of his long-term friends and partners, James Thrillkill, who is well-known for his work in jazz murals, and he's done murals, in fact, in South Africa, is also a part of the exhibit. Both of them were the artists who did the paintings for the exhibit, but they're joined by a third artist, George Nock, who's a former NFL football player, and he is the sculptor for the exhibit. So he's contributed several bronzes to the other artifacts that are part of the exhibit. So the primary medium for the exhibit is sculpture? It's painting and sculpture. So the exhibit opens next Tuesday, and there's a reception? Yes, there's a whole slew of events established around there. First of all, if people are interested in previewing the exhibit before our panel discussion and before the original opening date, then they can view that exhibit starting about 5 or 5.30. At 6 o'clock, we'll be welcoming our guests in the Washington Sankofa room downstairs, room 126. And there we'll have, as panelists, not only Michael McBride and George Nock, but we'll also be joined by part of the team that's going to take this information and make it into a documentary film. Carolyn McDonald will be a part of the conversation there um, as our members of the African American Cultural Center staff. And then we'll have a moment where people can have a reception and enjoy a light repast, and then we'll go up and see the exhibit together. So we'll end at 8 o'clock, and the doors will open at 5.30. We hope that you'll be there, sure. and we hope that this reaches so many students who will want to come learn more about this part of our history. The exhibit will actually be with us until April. All right, I'll have to stop by and see it. Thank you for coming in today. We appreciate it. Thank you. That was pretty cool. It's one of those black jockeys, something you don't really ever think about the history of Right, and book. apparently, like she said, they were the foundation of the sport and what make it made it, helped make it what it is today. That's, I mean, honestly, I've never really thought about the history of the, of the sport of horse racing, but I guess it came from somewhere, so <laughs> I guess I'll have to go check it out. All right, so we'll, we'll catch you guys after the break. With this year's presidential primaries in full swing, a lot of attention has been paid to Ron Paul, who everybody seems to have an opinion on. But many people don't really understand what Ron Paul or libertarianism is really all about. 
here to shed some light on libertarianism is Will Allen. Good evening. My guest tonight is Alexander Gill. Mr. Gill graduated summa cum laude from Tulane in 2005, taking degrees in economics, mathematics, and political economy. Upon graduation, he went to work as an investment banker, spending his first two years underwriting mortgage-backed securities for a major Wall Street firm. He then spent the next two years as an advisor to the liquidation of Lehman Brothers Holdings following their cataclysmic bankruptcy, the proximate cause of which was none other than toxic mortgage-backed securities. The irony was not lost on Mr. Gill, who soon came to deplore what he describes as the institutionalized moral hazard that he witnessed in the financial sector. In response, he took the drastic step of becoming an economist, returning to school to begin his doctorate in 2009. The loss of the financial industry has been the gain of North Carolina State, where Mr. Gill currently lectures in principles of macroeconomics while pursuing his dissertation. He is a member of Phi Beta Kappa, a recipient of the Murphy Prize in Political Economy from Tulane, and a committed libertarian for the past 13 years. In 2010, he founded the Austrian Economic Forum, about which we shall have more to say in due course. Mr. Gill joins me tonight to discuss the future of the libertarian movement in America, a topic which one can hardly address without mentioning Texas Congressman Ron Paul, who throughout his recurring presidential campaigns since 1988 has positioned himself as the standard bearer of libertarian ideals. I should like to begin by asking Mr. Gill to assess the impact of Dr. Paul's current presidential campaign on the future direction of libertarianism for good or for ill. Thank you, Will, for the introduction. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that the first question is on Ron Paul. I expected as much. Ron Paul has had an effect on me since I was in high school, so I've been a fan and a supporter for a long time. So as far as his impact on the political culture and sort of the acceptance of libertarianism in the United States, I don't think I could possibly overstate it. I think that one of the last areas of topics that Ron Paul constantly speaks about that is not being accepted by the general populace is foreign policy, which we can get to uh, if Ab- we wish. Absolutely. So if you go back four years, right, speaking about the Fed, speaking about monetary policy and bringing up the gold standard was was considered crazy. Now that seems more acceptable and seems it's getting some airtime on the major networks. But his foreign policy, if you look sort of at the blogosphere, most of what is said about his foreign policy is that it's absurd and crazy and completely disconnected from reality. If I may say on the foreign policy front, if we can just address that, I think that is, again, the last bastion of thought that is considered ridiculous from Ron Paul, but I think that's going to come around as well. First of all, we are in dire financial straits and we have sort of impending federal bankruptcy, which will affect our foreign policy regardless, no matter what we think. Well, the Office of Management and Budget estimated that was $159.3 billion spent last year alone on the war on terrorism. Which seems a staggering figure until you put it in perspective of the $2.4 trillion that was spent on entitlement programs, Social Security, your Medicare, etc. So it's difficult for me and I think difficult for some conservatives, libertarians, to accept the idea that the imperative to cut military spending comes only from fiscal concern. Right. And I think in Ron Paul's case, in his defense, it's not only his concern on the fiscal health of the nation, but also a feeling of morality and also an understanding of the war on terror that not many other Americans share. So, for instance, this question of, you know, why do they hate us? Why are we at war with these people? Right. Right. 
Ron Paul is one of the few nationally known political figures who's willing to embrace this idea that perhaps it's not because we're so free and prosperous that these individuals in the Middle East seek to do us harm, but perhaps it is our meddling in their affairs, constant droning. Do you agree with the position that we ought to roll back from being a significant military power in the world, a, a global military power? Well, I don't see a one-to-one correspondence between pulling out of Afghanistan and our various proxy wars in Africa and not being a world military power. And I think this is something that very recently Ron Paul has been trying to stress. The terms he uses is, I want to draw a distinction between military Military and defense spending. Right, exactly. 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 So, um, you know, I I find his arguments very compelling on that front. Explain explain the difference between being a global military power and having global engagement in military affairs, having, for example, operations in Afghanistan, supporting allies in Africa, Southeast Asia, Europe, all over the world. What is the substantive difference between the two? Because to a, to a traditional libertarian, well, I should, I should uh, preface that with, with noting that, mis- that Mr. Paul has been around since 1988 as a libertarian, so I hardly can claim to be more traditional than he, uh, but to many conservatives and libertarians, it is readily apparent that the United States has a vested interest, a strong national interest, in the maintenance of free trade, in the maintenance of free lines of communication around the world. And it's equally evident that those things would be impossible to maintain without a strong navy, a strong air force, a strong ground force located around the world and ready to respond to acts of violence and confiscation. Right. In that, in that context, excuse me, you could even make the argument that our global military presence is the inevitable consequence of the free trade and open markets that have been propounded so uh, keenly and so rightly by libertarians over the past several decades. Right, and certainly we've benefited as, as a country from this uh, globalized trade, and we certainly have gotten many benefits from our, from our trade with China. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's an inevitable conclusion that in order for our uh, trade to proceed safely that we need to patrol uh, all the the world's waterways and so on, and that we need to... Well, that's self-evident, though. I mean, it was said as long ago as Venetian times that who has his hand on the Straits of Molucca has his hand on the throat of Venice. And the same goes for the Strait of Hormuz and the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal and other waterways of that nature. And right, and so many people believe, as you seem to, that the, the Strait of Hormuz would be, um, would be you know, under the, the control of the Iranians and that free trade wouldn't proceed um, without our, our na- naval presence there. So... So well, as evidenced by the most recent confrontation, when they threatened to shut off the Strait of Hormuz. Right, and I, and I would just I would just say that you know to conclude that Iran's actions in the Strait of Hormuz or Hormuz uh, currently represent their trade policy is somewhat misleading because in the context of the warmongering of ourselves and and Israel and the the threats. Well, no, 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 no. Before you go accusing us and our allies of warmongering, you have to consider that Iran's foreign policy, their their trade policy, excuse me is entirely sublimated to a foreign policy of aggression, to a foreign policy of, of systematic destabilization of the region. Now, even before you get to Israel, even before you get to the United States, it's, it's difficult to uh, deny the fact that the regime in Iran depends upon uh, subjugating its people, depends upon suppressing internal dissent, and one of the ways that they do that is through a hawkish uh, military posture, a hawkish foreign policy posture, to which their trade interests are are but a tool by comparison. If we could uh, just wrap up sort of a discussion of, of Ron Paul's candidacy from a practical standpoint, uh, putting aside for a moment uh, state-level political activity, 
do you see the future for uh, libertarian reform of the federal government, as Dr. Paul evidently does, lying within the Republican Party right now? Yes. I don't see a feasible exit from a two-party system. I think when you get involved in the, the local campaigns, you know, for instance, if, if, if you were to you know, head up a campaign for the, the campus neighborhood, um, you would quickly find out as you went to uh, GOP party events, you would quickly realize what kind of power the parties have in, in our political process. And if you look at uh, laws across the states of getting on ballots and, and, and funding laws and, and all these rules, it, it starts to become pretty clear that the two-party system in this country is entrenched. And if you believe, like Ron Paul uh, evidently does, that internal change is possible, I think that's really the, the difference I see between the Occupy movement and the Ron Paul movement is the Ron Paul movement thinks they can make these changes within the system by winning elections, and the Occupy movement has no interest in that and, and simply wants to overthrow it from outside the system. And, and I'm not ready really to say which one is right. Let's move on, if we could, to taxation and to tax reform, which is – uh, a central plank of libertarian reform policy. Do you oppose only the present income tax system, uh, which most conservatives oppose for its high rates, for progressivity, for the, uh, the withholding process, and so forth? Or do you oppose the principle of collecting tax on income? I, along with most libertarians, view a person's income that they earn with their own labor as an extension of their ownership of themselves. So I view taxation of income, especially before that income is given to the, the wage earner, right? You know, the, the payroll tax is especially insidious. Right, exactly. So um, I, I, along with Ron Paul and, and most libertarians, view the income tax as a violation of property rights and, and, and as a threat to productivity and capitalism in general, right? You, you're creating new incentives in the economy, um, especially with the progressive income tax. Now, speaking as an economist, right, that most of the alternatives given by um, uh, GOP uh, candidates over the past, you know, 25 years has somewhere had a flat tax from, you know, from Herman Cain to Steve Forbes and so on. And the problem with that, speaking just as an, an economist for a second, is the sales tax is regressive. So it's one thing to get rid of the income tax that's progressive, but in a, especially in a representative democracy, to impose a flat sales tax is very difficult because – you know, as long as, as poor people are spending a, a, a greater amount of their income at the retail right. store buying food on inelastic so goods, on, right? Exactly. Then, then we're essentially uh, hurting the poor and taxing them. And, and you run into the you run rates. into the same philosophical objection as as exists to progressivity, namely that it doesn't constitute equal treatment under law. Right. Correct. Right. And 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 I do believe that's a problem. And and to the extent that the sales tax is different than the income tax because you, you in a sense, voluntarily pay it when you choose to buy something. Right. That, right. right. That, that, that's a hairy philosophical But that's precisely there, the problem, right? The degree to which the purchase is voluntary differs from, from income level to income level and from individual to individual. Therefore, Certainly. there's no way that a, a sales tax-based system could ensure equal treatment under law. Certainly. And, and, and even uh, Ron Paul, you know – most libertarians aren't aren't anarchists, so we do want funding for the military and police and the courts and so right. on. So there there has to be some source, and this is this is a problem. Um, so when when Dr. Paul said on the on the debate stage uh, a few weeks ago that when asked what the income tax rate ought to be, and he said zero, how would you fill in the blank after that? What would be, as you see it, the the least evil or the or the best alternative to the income tax? 
I think any proposal is somewhat arbitrary. If I were running for president, I would propose a flat uh, import tariff and and forego the flat sales tax and forego the income tax. Uh, I wanted to touch on one last topic before we wrap up. Beyond uh, the liability of, of foreign policy isolationism, it seems to me, though, that libertarianism faces one other threat, which is far more serious, and that is a, a moral threat uh, from something that, that – Observers, including David Boaz of the Cato Institute, have characterized as a kind of atomistic individualism, a, a worldview which I think you're familiar with that uh, begins with the premise that because markets and the invisible hand of markets compel self-interested people to benefit the public good, that therefore we should discard all social sanction of charity. We should discard all social sanction of kindness. And... Uh, encourage each person to pursue only his short-term material self-interest. So I just want to ask you, in your view, what is the proper role of charity and virtue within the libertarian worldview? I, I think that, that libertarians, like all politically active and engaged uh, groups, ultimately seek the same thing. Uh, prosperity, peace, equal treatment of, of, of citizens – and the disagreements lie in, in how we achieve them. And I think um, when, when you hear statements uh, from Ayn Rand or, or even Dr. Paul or, or other you know, sort of titans of the movement, those, those statements are easy to construe as, you know, I'm smart and I'm good and I'm capable. I'm going to accrue all the world's resources to me and everyone else can, can deal with it. And I think that's a misconception. I think that the reason that people like myself and Dr. Paul in, you know, spend our lives promoting these ideas is because we want the same things that, that liberals and, and, and traditional conservatives want. Right. We just have a different understanding of how to go about it. We have a different view of what made America prosperous and what – I mean it, David Boaz, who you brought up earlier, he was actually uh, – my introduction to libertarianism, and I read his book, uh, Libertarianism, a Primer, and there's a statistic in that book that it's, it's, it's somewhat dated now, but in 1994, like 96% of the people that lived beneath the poverty line in the United States had a color television, okay? So the question is, what does that? How, how, how do even the poorest people in our society get, you know, quality entertainment or whatever you want to call it, is that is that because of welfare or is that because our society is so productive and so rich that we have so many resources to go around that even the poorest among us can have some of modern life's luxuries? And I just, you know, I'm concerned about the, the, the lower classes in this country as much as anyone else. I just have a different approach to going about it, and so does Ron Paul. And so it's not that we want to um, deny people health care, deny people um, – uh, you know, a living wage and so on. It's just that we view the only way to do that in a, in a world of scarce resources, the best way to achieve these goals is to let people be as productive as they can and make their own decisions, allocate their labor to where they, they think they're most efficiently used, and then we'll have the best society we can. Certainly, there will always be people hungry in the world. We're just doing our best to, to, to make that number as small as possible. I regret that we're nearly out of time. If you have enjoyed this discussion, I encourage you to attend the next meeting of the Austrian Economic Forum this Friday, January the 27th at 4.30 p.m. in the third floor boardroom of Nelson Hall. I should like to conclude by asking Mr. Gill to briefly describe the activities of the forum to our listeners. 
So the the Austrian Economic Forum meets once every two weeks on on Friday afternoons, and we discuss a different reading, a different paper uh, every time. There's usually a discussion leader, but there doesn't have to be. But the the purpose of the the group is to supplement the economics education for NC State students and other students around the triangle, um, and so that they they learn you know mainstream economics and so on in the class, but they have a formal opportunity to learn you know unconventional approaches to economics and and we think that it's really uh, improved our curriculum at the school and that that students are getting a lot out of it thank you very much for joining me my guest has been alexander gill of the austrian economics forum at north carolina state university for 88.1 wknc this is william allen good night just like to mention that the views and opinions reflected in that last piece do not necessarily reflect those of WKNC, NC State Student Media, or NCSU. The Occupy Wall Street movement has been out of the news for a while now, and Mark Herring has some thoughts on the future of the movement born in Zuccotti Park. Two Occupy Raleigh protesters were arrested this weekend after marching peacefully in Morgan Street in downtown Raleigh. I'm not upset about the arrests or the police action. I'm frustrated with the Occupy movement's inept ability to do something about what they're protesting. I abhor corruption of any sort, and I too am frustrated by the lack of transparency in Wall Street. But Occupy has lost my attention. In all honesty, who supports corruption? This past year has been the year of protests. From Tunisia to Bahrain to those demanding democracy in Russia, protesters have confronted social injustice and many of them have made a tangible change and inspired others. Time magazine did not award a person of the year for 2011, but rather dedicated it to the activists who worked for a more democratic society. These people had charisma, their desires had deliberation, and they stood behind a common goal. The Occupy movement has ignored this. Occupy has not proven to be a credible organization, and they have not provided thoughtful insight or recourses for consideration. The Berliners of 1989 rallied to unite their country, and the Egyptians this past year overtook Tahrir Square to rewrite their futures. But Occupiers have not only upset the people who they're occupying, they upset the public instead of inspire them. Though I do not support the Tea Party, they took action, set goals, mustered support, and put representatives into power. Though Occupy may be protesting the excesses of American democracy, the movement can't shun the institution completely. Though Occupy may be protesting the decadency of Wall Street, fair and monitored capitalism may be the remedy to promote socioeconomic progress. With national and state elections only months away, 
I would suggest to take civic action through the democratic process. And as university students, our objective is to study and eliminate the flaws of the current system, not camping out in our bankers or government officials' backyard and rejecting their authority. Though we're all fed up, let's do something about it, instead of literally sitting around and whining. Yeah, no, Mark, I'm kind of on the same page with you there. I kind of feel what you're saying. Okay, I, I'm, I'm glad you it understand. Makes a lot of sense. I agree, because when, when you first heard about this movement, you thought, oh, well, finally, someone that feels like me is, is standing up and saying something. But, but then, because, like, everyone feels like me, so who are you really protesting against? Well, the thing is, that was started back in, in what, early September or something. And yeah. I thought it was, it was really cool, and the months dragged on. And now they're at the point where, okay, do we want to mature and turn into something more, or do we want to just fizzle out and, you know... And I think that they're missing their, their opportunity there. Yeah, I, I just, I, I feel like they're fizzling out. And the one problem is they don't have someone to rally behind. I mean, the civil rights movement had Martin Luther King and all of those leaders. Uh, Tahrir Square and the Arab uprising in, uh, in North Africa, you know, they had people that were organizing them and they had goals and they had some sort of objective. But uh, just being frustrated, that's not going to do anything. Right. You know, and banging the drums in the park, you know, that'll attract, <laughs> that'll attract attention for a little while, but after a while that just gets annoying and no one's going to listen to you. Well, uh, hopefully everyone has learned a valuable lesson from what happened to Occupy, uh, the Occupy movement, what's going on. And, uh, you know, despite uh, my criticism, you know, I hope we move forward because I, I do understand why they're doing it. It's just uh, let's do something a little more progressive. Yeah, definitely. So next, let's find out what's going on around campus with Dave. Hello, I'm Dave with this week's community calendar. If you're a biology or zoology major, make sure to look up the Harkama Scholarship Awards. The Harkama Fund wishes to provide students with opportunities to participate in programs that enhance their academic experience at NC State. You can look it up and apply by 5 p.m. on March 19th. The Council on Undergraduate Education will be meeting on Friday the 27th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at Park Shops. The UAB Issues and Ideas Committee is hosting the J-Spot, A Sex Educator Tells All. This program will feature a lecture from a sexual relationship expert. This will be at Stewart Theater at 7 p.m. tomorrow night. On Thursday at 8 p.m., the Turtle Island Quartet will be playing a concert in Stewart Theater centered around the music of the legendary John Coltrane. Tickets for students are $5. And last but not least, the Witherspoon Student Theater will be showing Real Steel, Donnie Darko, and The Thing this weekend. Tickets are $2 for all. If you need more information about any of the things I've mentioned, check out the calendar at www.ncsu.edu. Well, that's all we've got for you tonight. We thank you for tuning in. If you liked anything you heard, be sure to let us know on Facebook. Also, be sure to read our blog at WKNC.org or follow us on Twitter, Twitter I'm sorry, at WKNC underscore EOT. Until next week. Good night.